Welcome to Terrorograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 22nd Delivery of Terrorograms. In this dispatch, we are joined by Alexander Reeford, the director of the Reeford Gardens and the International Garden Festival of Natisse, Quebec. Alexander was instrumental in creating a nonprofit organization to acquire the Reeford Gardens in 1995 and has gone on to restoring both the gardens and their buildings since then. Following the model of Chaumont-sur-Loire, France, in 2000, Alexander expanded the Reeford Gardens by introducing the International Garden Festival. The festival has since constructed the gardens of young designers such as Claude Cormier, Nick Landscape, Paula Merink, who spoke to us in Terragrams 10, and Chris Reed of Stoss Landscape Urbanism, who spoke to us in Terragrams 15. Alexander is on the board of directors for the Canadian Tourism Commission. He is the president of the Quebec Gardens Association and of Tourism Gaspier. He has written a number of books and numerous articles in the fields of garden design, Canadian history, and tourism. Terragrams is very happy to welcome Alexander Reeford. Alexander, thank you for taking the time to join us at Terragrams. Thank you. Thank you. You have just launched or opened the 10th edition of the Matisse International Garden Festival. How does this 10th edition differ from those editions of the past? Well, it's different partly because it's simply bigger, bigger and more gardens. So we have, in terms of both the number of gardens, but also, I guess, the volume of the garden. It's a site that we created for the festival, but this is the first time we've really used every available space. And it's also, in fact, an addition where we have two gardens that form part of the festival that are not in the festival space, but are actually in the historic section of the garden. So that's a new thing for us. Yeah, how else does one say? Is it different? Is it better? Is it? Um, it's certainly varied. Uh, we, we in the sort of design brief in the competition, we were looking for so-called festive gardens. Um, not sure that we chose ones on that basis, but I think we've ended up with some very colorful, imaginative, um, interactive spaces that I think will, will work very effectively with um, our public, which is quite varied and quite large, and no doubt will enjoy the multiple experiences that are being offered this summer. The first edition was in 2000. Mm-hmm. How was it born? Well, the festival in 2000 was born, I guess, from a couple of for a couple of reasons. One was it was a kind of a natural outgrowth of a summer school that we had held beginning in 1998 with the University of Montreal, who you, we began using our site at our invitation as a as a venue for a, a summer school in, in landscape architecture. And part of the process of the summer school was to invite students to create mini gardens um, as a kind of a juried competition. And that, that process has sort of inspired us to to realize that our space and our landscape and our site and our environment and our climate and our people and staff really created a, a venue where, you know, the creation of ephemeral gardens was, was possible. And we were quite inspired, or I was in particular, by the, the enormous press coverage and visibility that the festival in, at Chaumont-sur-Loire in France had generated and, uh, you know, was, I think, probably like many others, was surprised and uh, impressed by the volume of extraordinarily varied and unusual projects that were being published from that festival. So it struck me as a, as a model that we could, we could follow. And I guess the third impulse was we realized clients were giving landscape architects in particular uh, opportunities to be innovative and imaginative without all kinds of strictures and and, um, and parameters and criteria. So we thought that the festival could play a role in, in allowing people to be more creative than 
they would otherwise have the opportunity to be. And there was a fourth objective, which frankly was to bring more people to the gardens, and it struck us as a, as kind of using the festival as a temporary exhibition, not unlike the what big museums do, where nobody really sees the permanent collection until there's some pretext to go in and visit, that we could use the festival as a temporary exhibition and package it and market it and promote it as a as an opportunity to say to people who've been here or not been here, but say, look, you've got to come this summer because we're presenting X, Y, Z designer from this this or that country. And so those were some of the objectives. I mean, there have been others that have followed, but I guess at the start of the project, that was really what we were trying to achieve. And we were fortunate enough, it was a millennium year, and there was a lot of public money available for unusual and perhaps otherwise uh, crazy projects. And we, we applied and were successful. So we got a large grant for the very first edition of the festival in 2000. So it just came together that in that year we we uh, we held the first edition. But why would the people really care so much about experimentation in the landscape or in the gardens? Especially here, juxtaposed to some very important, uh, recently restored historic gardens. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess one of the reasons why I became interested in the idea was uh, we had done some work on the restoration of the historic gardens using the the extraordinary documentation that we possess, both photographic and documentary. Um, but I realized that that was interesting, but it wasn't sufficient, I guess, for me personally. As, as uh, It was satisfying, and it was important, and it was valid. And But there's a, you can't really move. You restore something once, you can't re-restore it. I mean, you, you do it. If you do it right, then it, it becomes, in and of itself, um, um, a kind of a purified or... or an, improved object or, or whatever. So the historic gardens, once the restoration process was completed, uh, frankly, I was looking for other things to do in the site. And we'd done a couple of projects where we'd had concerts with the uh, symphony orchestras in the gardens and, and other, uh, you know, sort of parenthetical um, events. And it struck me as, well, why are we spending all this energy doing music and and things that are not central to our mission? Why not do something which is really based on gardens? And the festival sort of became a... Uh, a, a way in which to employ our site more fully, but to have it really anchored in what we do, what we, what we do and have done for generations, which is to, is to create and, and uh, maintain gardens for a large public. You, you were the co-director. Who was, who was the other director? Well, at this, in the first instance, uh, I had two colleagues who were became involved in the project. One was Philippe Poulawek Gondidec, who was. Uh, then a professor at the University of Montreal. He held the chair in landscape design and environment at the University of Montreal. He's since gone on to become the UNESCO chairholder at the same university. And uh, so we sort of pioneered the idea, and we brought on board a, an architect who was then working for the Ministry of Culture in Quebec, Denis Lemieux. And the three of us um, you know, pushed the idea forward and made the grant applications and did the kind of groundwork necessary for, in the first instance, holding a design competition to choose the designers for the site and then moving forward in the selection of the first designers for the first edition, which was done um, in 1999 with the designers then visiting the gardens in that summer and then beginning the design process for gardens that were then built and constructed for the first edition in 2000. With 10 years of retrospect, time to look back, is the Garden Festival itself coming to the end of its life? Is it an ephemeral entity as the gardens are? Um, should it continue? Will it continue? 
What's the what's the outlook? Yeah, I would say that question. Uh, it's a tough one to answer. Obviously, you know, I manage a historic property with the festival as a significant component now of its annual program. And uh, true to say that every year we question, you know, what what's the what's the worthiness of such an event? Uh, you know, is it worth all the effort and financing required? What are we achieving by having a festival? Are we really providing designers with um, what we set out as our objectives, that is, a venue to be innovative and imaginative and creative and so on. Because I think over the last 10 years, one thing we have noticed, certainly in Quebec, and I would say largely um, you know, across North America, including Canada, is that there are more opportunities now for designers to be fully involved in the creative process in terms of urban landscapes and, and even um, private gardens. We didn't, I wouldn't say we saw that as much 10 years ago, I think North American and Canadian designers in particular were not given a lot of freedom to be um, wildly creative. The cities and the various corporate clients who give them gave them much of their work were not all that open to uh, the use of uh, new materials and new colors and so on. And I think that has shifted. So we, yeah, we do question uh, the the the, um, the worthiness of the event. But um, you know, having just gone through another week of intense construction and um, a roundtable of designers, I guess I continue to believe that festivals have a place in the design process. We do give new designers opportunities. We do bring designers together from various parts of the world. We offer our site as a pretty unique place in which to um, cohabit with the historic garden. Um, and insofar as that process um, you know, remains interesting and we have a team and some financing that uh, enables us to do it, I think we'll carry on indefinitely. Do you imagine that the festival itself will increase in... Uh in its internal size, now you said you have 20 gardens on site, two in the festival grounds, 18 in the festival grounds, and two on the historic gardens. Do you see adding extra parcels in in the main festival zone? It's something we just talked about. In fact, yesterday, you know, do we need more spaces, and if so, where? And I mean, it would require us if, would require us, frankly, to purchase more property, which you know, which I'm a great believer in because it would protect us from development and all that kind of thing. But there's a, you know, there's a period in time when you, you sort of wonder you're not getting ahead of yourself. Um, we do have a historic garden. We've always been a little leery to allow designers to, to move into these spaces for maybe obvious reasons, but partly because we do have a historic garden that has a history and a, and a creator and a designer and historic plantings. And while we encourage the use of contemporary art, we try to, to some extent, keep the two separate. So we have contemporary sculpture in the historic gardens, which seems to work quite well, and the festival gardens, I mean, confined to the festival site. Uh, that said, you know, we're always looking at, um, you know, what's right and, and what's interesting, I guess, for the designer and design process. We do have 20 gardens this year, which is a record for us. Um, and there's some sort of spaces adjacent to the festival site that could be used. But I'm not convinced that uh, we can actually physically construct more than that number in any given year because the effort required is substantial and, the, frankly, the time period we have in our climate is so limited. We really can't start work until the 1st of May in any significant fashion. So unless we actually begin the construction in the previous fall, um, we can't do much more than 20 gardens in any given year. Some of the gardens... Are have returned from the previous years, mm -hmm. and there are few that have been been marked as permanent gardens. What is the relationship between, or how does the garden evolve from being a temporary entity into being a permanent entry, a, entity in the in the festival? 
When we began the project, we were really looking for the notion of ephemerality and temporality. We didn't seek to have permanent installations. We weren't trying to create a sculpture garden, you know, which some institutions have done around the world. We weren't looking to overbuild as well. We didn't want designers to create things that would have the degree of permanence in terms of footings and foundations and and so on. So we really were looking for gardens that would have a one or two or maybe three-year lifespan, and that's pretty much been the case. We have one installation, which is a garden room by Hallingberg, an architect from Montreal, which is, which is fragile. In fact, we lost a pane of the glass uh, last, uh, last summer to a, to a boot or a, to a crack. In any case, we had a pane of glass broken, and we're now in the process of replacing that. But that's the only installation that it really has sort of acquired a permanent status until Claude's a blue stick garden that is sort of permanent, as we discussed with the designer, permanent with a capital P. I mean, it's permanent insofar as it can be, but we know it's made of wood, and our climate has a particularly, uh, how does one put it, an aggressive relationship with wood because it doesn't last uh, very long, uh, given the salt water and the and the uh, winter winter environment. So, you know, it may be permanent, but in a, in a five or ten year lifespan. It may be permanent for five years. Yeah, exactly. Sort of, we, you know, it's a Canadian form of permanence, I guess, because our climate is so difficult. Uh, you know, and that said, um, we don't have a process, really, to sort of evaluate what, what stays and what, what goes. We don't really have established criteria, but what works uh, seems on occasion it's uh, financial, on occasion it's um, programming, on occasion it's because the space works so well with a particular garden. But it would be unusual for us to keep a garden for more than three years, um, and we don't intend on becoming a kind of permanent sculpture park with temporary gardens that all become permanent. Mm -hmm. You're an honor honorary member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, uh, and clearly passionate about gardens. Do you design? You know, I'm a frustrated architect, I would say. You know, if I were doing my life over, I might have gone into the design field. Um, I spent my. I grew up in a farm, so I spent my life gardening with my parents, who were very avid gardeners, and I was sort of the wheelbarrow <laughs> wheeler and the the soil getter and the composter and the leaf blower and all that kind of stuff that uh, young men don't like to do very much of. But I got stuck doing. So, um, you know, I grew up gardening, but frankly, I haven't done a great deal in the last number of years. My my dream when I came here as a naive uh, thirty whatever year old was that I would have an opportunity to. Uh, to be kind of a gentleman farmer, and I could do a couple of hours in the office in the morning and be out on the grounds in the sun and uh, have a nice natural life down the afternoon, but it hasn't turned out like that. We've just created so many projects and so many um, new aspects of our project that it's just taken on a life of its own. But on occasion, uh, as you saw this week, you know, I like to get out and do what I can to, to physically move things around and make it better. But I, I, know I don't pretend to be a garden designer, even if I have uh, hundreds of books and articles uh, on the subject. But your great-grandmother, Elsie Reford, was she a gardener or passionate about gardens? She was both passionate and a gardener. I mean, I think she was a, uh, she began as an amateur gardener with little, you know, little foundation and not a lot of experience. But by the end of her life, she was clearly an able gardener because she was able to write articles for some of the prestigious gardening magazines of that time. And she was able to communicate and uh, compete, I guess you could say, with some of the best. Mm -hmm. She clearly had a green thumb. She had some very good gardeners. But what was interesting, I think, about this garden, um, in contrast to many built by women of her social strata of that era, was that she didn't use a professional designer. She didn't appeal, she didn't appeal to an architect or a landscape architect to design it. She really wanted this to be her, her work, her, um, her creation, and she was very proud of her uh, achievements and her failures. I mean, she said the gardening was a matter of 
of trial and error and that she was thus able to claim all success and all the failures as her own. And I think that was frankly part of her wish to sort of break out of the bounds that were then uh, containing women and sort of the social boxes that they were then living in. And so the gardens, I think, were for, for her were kind of freedom to create. And her husband, did she, did he experiment or did he participate in the, the garden making? He was very active on the site. Uh, you know, he was an avid photographer and uh, chronicled his wife's achievements on a pretty regular basis with his camera. He was also very interested in crops and, and, uh, and produce, so he sort of handled the farms and the um, vegetable garden. He was, there's a lot lengthy correspondence trying to find the right carrots and the right corn, and he experimented with growing sunflowers during the Second World War to create sunflower oil. So he was very interested in the kind of agricultural element of horticulture, but he, there's no evidence that he actually planted a plant in his entire life here. What he did do was he designed uh, part of the long walk, and he designed the bridges as a kind of a... Assisted his wife in kind of the heavy engineering, but he was certainly no gardener. Now you mentioned in the inauguration speech to the festival that if Elsie could see the gardens now, that she would potentially roll over in her grave, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't. The big question would be uh, not about her rolling over, but at what speed she would yeah. roll over. If she could take a walk through the garden now. What would she think of the whole thing? You know, I ask that question to myself. It's kind of a stupid question to ask because the woman's been gone a long time. But you do that, I guess, if you're a family member and if, you're, if you think, as I often do, about her, her life and her achievements in the garden that she created and, you know, spent a lot of her fortune on. How does one ask that question? I think one answers it by saying that she never... She was of that sort of time period where she couldn't get her head around making a private garden public. That would have been the first blockage, I guess you could use the term. She wouldn't have understood the impulse to create, to make her garden a public one, because in her day it was private, and private meant you came by invitation, you didn't have visitors unless it were a special function and event. And it was a really a garden that was created for her own pleasure and that of her family. And there are a couple of very wistful letters in which at the end of her life she says, you know, I really wish this garden had stayed in the family, and that's why I created, created it. And then sort of dot, 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 she says, but um, of all the fates that could have befallen my beloved property, then I suppose a public garden is the best of them. So she was sort of reconciled with it, but she could never herself have made that decision. So she would have probably been, um, you know, she would have been horrified with all the machinery on the site because her gardens had no machinery. The first thing her gardener did when, when she left was to buy a garden tractor, as if, as, which strikes me as sort of a testimony that she was a bit of a Luddite and she believed, as I, you know, as I think, we, I still do that some machinery is is more dangerous for gardens than simple hand labor. But you know she'd be horrified by that. She'd be horrified with the number of people probably in the, in the space. But I think she'd be secretly um, or quietly pleased with the fact that the plants that she herself physically planted with her gardeners and chose and selected eighty some years ago were still alive and flourishing. I think that would probably be her biggest pleasure because essentially she was a plants plantsman or a plantswoman. That was her real love. The design of the garden was kind of ancillary to her, her desire to collect plants and see them flourish. Do you think that the irreverence of the festival somehow has a, uh, somehow stimulates its own perpetuation? Yeah, you know, I think innovation, kind of a means to an end, but it can also be an end in itself. And I think the festival, I guess, exists for. Uh, for that purpose. It's, it's one, one of the things that it does, and I suppose when it stops being innovative, it's no longer 
necessary, but I think it is provocative for the sake of provocation. That is, it, it, it has as one of its uh, um, objectives to provoke and to test and to experiment and to create um, in ways that would otherwise be impossible. So one of the great pleasures for me personally of managing this property is to see how a designer um, can come to the same space uh, year after year and create something which is so completely different from the from what a previous designer has done with that very same space. And, you know, of course, the web and, and publications have, been, have enabled us to some extent to be able to kind of create a, a voyage through this creativity because you can now compare how the physical space remains unchanged. The trees may have grown, but the views and the vistas are identical and the, and the soil and plant composition is the same, and yet the space is different. It's experienced differently. It's planted differently. It's colored differently. And ultimately, I think, for the public, the garden... Um, is so completely the experience of the garden is so completely transformed by the creative process that the designers bring to it, and that for me is the most exciting thing, is to create um, new experiences in the same space on an annual basis. It's it's quite a privilege and a pleasure to see that work, and we have a number of you know a large number of visitors who've who come to the gardens now specifically to see how these spaces have been transformed, and frankly are upset when we don't transform enough. <laughs> so this year they should be fully satisfied. <laughs> You were instrumental in creating a non-for-profit organization that purchased the garden from the government, from the Quebec government in 1995, and instrumental in the restoration of the gardens and the buildings since then. Why do you care so much? Many people ask me that question, particularly my, my family. And, um, <laughs> Because it is a bit, you know, it's a bit of a career aberration. I was quite happy at the University of Toronto where I was then working. I was a sort of a junior academic rising quietly through the ranks and finishing a doctorate in history and, you know, and loved academia, loved the academic environment and had spent many years in it. So it was quite comfortable for me. And then suddenly the government announces on the television news that the government of Quebec is going to sell the property that my family had sold long before I was able or interested to become involved in it. So before I was born, in fact, the property was sold. And yet the property had always had a kind of a currency because it was a place that was talked about. You know, my father was good with a good raconteur with lots of stories, and my grandfather lived nearby until he died. So there was a kind of a vestigial connection. And then quite accidentally, as I was doing some of my own historical research on an ancestor who, whose biography I was commissioned to write, came across in an archive in Montreal boxes and boxes of material on the gardens. And instead of doing what I should have been doing, I began to pour through these boxes of untouched material, photographs and documents and bills and the kinds of things that historians love coming across because it creates a kind of a full picture. So I came here quite naively offering my services to write a guidebook to the gardens, to the then manager who worked for the government. And six months later, that same government decided to sell the property. So it seemed kind of my, my interest was there. My, my passion had been expressed and this sort of opportunity came along. And I thought, well, it's one of those things you either do and, and enjoy or don't and regret thinking, you know, what would have happened had I done it. So I sort of jumped with the, with both feet and formed a not-for-profit corporation, constructed a bid process with my brother and sister-in-law and some local partners, Les Ateliers Plein who had the concession at that point to run the shop and the restaurant here. And we, you know, flying by the seat of our pants, submitted a bid, and the bid was chosen, and the contract was signed. And then, you know, much to our collective surprise, uh, six months later we were given the keys and... Uh, and, you know, they said, go to it kind of thing with no promise of financial assistance or no 
no clear um, or particularly a profound business plan, but uh, th things have worked out f by and large um, with a combination of, I guess, good fortune and, uh, and good help to create what is now one of, the, I think, the leading gardens in North America. How, how did you make it happen the first couple of years? Well, how do we make it happen? I think we were sort of blustering along with a kind of naivete that, uh, that I shake my head at now. We had a lot of visitors. That you see in some of your gardens. Yeah, yeah to some extent, gardens. yeah. I mean, frankly, one of our greatest successes, it was a garden that, that the government, to their credit, had turned into a significant attraction. So when you have, you know, 100,000 people visiting, well, that creates a visitor base and a, and a revenue base, which is quite significant. So at that point, the admission price was quite modest, but it still allowed us to have over half a million dollars in admission revenue, which is pretty good for a public garden, whatever the size. And so it allowed us, I guess, to plan relatively intelligently the first couple of years and to begin to experiment. You know, we had the luxury of experimenting with projects and opening a garden shop and beginning an educational program and creating kind of educational stays for a particular clientele and beginning the restoration of the gardens. And then sort of that work was completed and then we became more ambitious in building new buildings and creating a new service center and the festival and so on. So we've gone through a couple of phases, and the first phase was, frankly, naive good fortune. The second phase was much more um, planned and, and programmed, and now I think we're sort of in a third phase where those two have been, been lived through, and now we're sort of in the process of you know dealing with growing pains and trying to maintain um, our clientele and trying to remain relevant and um, marketing in a very difficult environment economically and tourism-wise in a part of the world that's not easily accessible. So those are the challenges we're facing now. And on the site, do you have any medium to long-term plans? Well, we have a, uh, another project. My board colleagues say, oh, not another project. Can't we just relax for a couple of years? What's the, what's the hurry? But we do have a project which is very much linked to one of our more recent um, orientations, which is to try and encourage. We have a very young chef that we hired four or five years ago to kind of transform the, the culinary um, experience here because this was, a, this was a venue, this was a place, this was a home in which um, the gardens were important, but so too was local produce and the far, there were farms that provided it with fresh, you know, eggs and milk and cream and butter and, and beef and all the rest of it. It was a self-sustaining agricultural estate like many of that time period. And it struck us as, as sort of a natural continuum in the restoration process to, to allow our visitors to have that if possible. We found a chef who was interested in that. And now we're taking it a step further by actually creating parts of the gardens dedicated entirely to producing plants that he will then use um, to provide interesting culinary experiences to our, to our visitors. And that's sort of also part of a changing evolution of the market where we're now seeing gardens were hot five, seven years ago and now, you know, the biggest names in contemporary culture are now chefs. And so it struck us as sort of a good marketing moment as well to think more carefully about how we package the, the restaurants and so on and to make dining here as interesting as wandering the pathways. And so we're going to build a garden. We're going to restore a historic section of the gardens that was previously a vegetable garden. We're going to create a picking garden where my great grandmother previously had plants entirely dedicated for the bouquets that were then plentiful. And we're also going to have an experimental section, which she didn't have, but in which we will allow our chef and with some expert advice to actually choose some unusual plants for their unusual colors or scents or flavors that we can then 
you know, maybe use strictly in the on the in the dining rooms here, but maybe also for micro production on a small scale of some products that we can then sell to people as they visit in the gift shop. Yeah, exactly. Will there be chickens? Good question. Ornamental chickens? Don't think so. <laughs> Don't think we'll go the wildfowl route, partly because we have a lot of natural predators here, and and I'm not sure that we'll go into animal husbandry. You know, it's one of the things that I thought about periodically. It'd be great to own you know a thousand acres nearby as my great-grandparents used to do, but I just think that era has passed, you know, the, and the costs of being a professional producer um, is probably beyond us. But, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, we could do all that stuff, but we're very happy to work with local producers who do that on a dedicated basis, and it's probably better for us to support them than to compete with them. The Reefords were one of the original established Anglo-Saxon families that settled this summer community around here. Why did they pick here? Why did they pick here? Well, in fact, there are sort of two families. My great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather's father, Robert Reeford, built a house in Matisse, a little community up the road here, because like a lot of Montrealers who were living in uh, sort of cholera, smallpox-ridden cities in North America, they wanted to get out, or they wanted their family to get out when it was um, inclement, i.e. too hot, and dangerous for their health. And this particular part of the world is about as far from Montreal as you could then get. But it was also convenient because you, you could get in the train and you could ship your family off and you could see them on weekends periodically and then come for a month or something like that. So that was sort of the pattern in the 1880s when they built the house here. And then my great-grandfather, that is this man's son, met my great-grandmother, Elsie, whose family's had a house here just up the road. So the two families, in fact... Each had homes in this part of the world, and but this this fan, this property is different because this had this had as its raison d'être was a fishing camp because it was on a river and people came to fish for salmon on the river. So my grandmother's uncle was a very wealthy railway baron who fished here from the 1870s and then built this house in the 1880s. And having no children of his own, left the property to his niece, who was my great grandmother. So at that point, my great grandfather, whose family had a house five miles up the road, that was given to his sisters, and he moved here, and and you know they spent the rest of their lives here as a couple. But we, I have many cousins who still summer nearby in Matisse from mine. Mm -hmm. How were they perceived here by the local? francophone community you know it's a, it's one of the tough questions historically i know what i know because i have the documents but i don't know a lot because i don't you know alas in our world the you know the poor and the and the impoverished and the illiterate don't leave a lot of uh, records of their thoughts and, and uh, so only occasionally do i find sort of historical records of how they were perceived i think my great grandmother in particular was very careful she was a very astute woman who knew what to do and how to do it, and she had a great sense of noblesse oblige, and she played the role, I think, quite magnanimously of being, uh, you know, landowner. So she paid people correctly, not excessively, but correctly. She treated them well. She spoke to them in French, uh, if that was their language, because she spoke French quite well. She didn't have, unlike a lot of the English-speaking community in Quebec, she didn't. She wasn't operating an industry or a plant or a mill, so she, she didn't have that employee-employer relationship that is somewhat sometimes poisonous, certainly in the 1920s and 1930s. And so she was able to be the generous um, communitarian who would endow book prizes and give food to people and bring shoes to the impoverished and, you know, send large Christmas packages to people and do the kinds of things that it seemed so outdated. But at that point, people did because that was the only support system. You know, that said, I'm not sure that she was loved or... or um, 
I'm not sure the absolute relationship, but I know that she was respected, sometimes feared, and I think she did the right thing at the right times for most of the people that she could. Do you think the site, and especially the events around the site, reach out more to the local communities than it, uh, the family has in the past? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've been very careful as a citizen. It, you know, when I moved here, I deliberately didn't move into the Anglophone community. I live in a little village surrounded by French-speaking people, and that was partly political and partly because they had a better view and it was less expensive. But it was also, I think, my wish to be part of the community with a capital C and not just be part of the English-speaking community because the English-speaking community here is significant, but it's basically a summer community, so it's a small community and much bigger in the summer. And, you know, they're wealthier and... and uh, widely educated and live around the world and they come here for a month or two months in the summer. And so what we do now in terms of our events, and you, you had a chance to see it, you know, most of what we do, we do in French because that's the language of our operations here. And so we do reach out to people. We do try and put on events. We do a number of literary events every summer, musical events, uh, lectures, um, activities for families, and most of those are essentially for the permanent uh, Francophone community. But that said, I think we're a bit of a leader locally in, in providing services in both official languages. And I like to think that, that we're respected in both communities. And, you know, we do what we do for, the, you know, we frankly, we're in it uh, partly out of self-interest, but we're also trying to serve the, the greatest community, uh, French-English. And if, you know, Italians and Chinese move here, then we'll probably start serving them too. The gardens, the gardens here, the festival, have become a really big draw for the, for the place an attraction, a regional attraction. Uh, do you think that has that's positively impacted the the communities around? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we this this property was purchased by the government of Quebec in nineteen sixty one because it was thought to have potential as a significant attraction and it's lived up to that objective right from day one, partly because it's located in a part of the world where there are very few uh, built attractions. Most attractions in this part of the world are natural, which are Obviously, you know, tough to compete with. The St. Lawrence is magnificent, and the landscape is extraordinary. But there are very few sort of typical man-made attractions. There are very few historic monuments. There are no big buildings. The cities are very small. The shopping is non-existent. The restaurants are relatively few and far between. So we're never going to draw a large number of people just because we're here, because there are other beautiful parts of the continent. But the gardens and the festival are unique. The gardens are unique in their own way, and the festival is certainly unique in terms of the North American environment. And we are the biggest attraction, essentially, between Quebec and Percé, which is a significant attraction east of here. With the exception of the national parks, we are the biggest draw. And we don't have accommodation on site, so necessarily, because of the distance traveled, people stay somewhere, and they usually stay in motels or hotels or local gîtes and auberges. And so, because of that, there are a lot of spin-offs that that occur just because of our presence here and the number of people who, who uh, frequent our, our gardens. And while, while the communities around are planning their region, does the festival and the gardens play a role in, in how they see their, their bigger landscapes evolve? You know, if there's one, been one disappointment in the last decade of my activity here is the degree to which we are not able to, I guess, affect planning and... and um, and landscape. We are beginning to, but I must say it's taken a long time. So I can't say that we have transformed the way um, planning has occurred. It, part of it is just because we don't have the resources. I mean, if we had a full-time landscape architect on staff, we could do all kinds of wonderful things in the mm -hmm. communities because they tend not to have those resources. They can't afford them. They don't know what they are. They don't have access to them. 
and we could certainly bring them a you know extraordinary expertise in terms of people like yourself and many others who've come and created small spaces. They could certainly use our help, and they'd make a lot of unfortunate decisions because they're not um, sufficiently aware of what can be done with a relatively modest investment. So I think we could do more on that level. We are doing a we just begun a project with three local uh, partners to kind of, on a macro scale, plan some of the landscapes and the approaches in the immediate vicinity. So on like a 10-square-kilometer radius, or maybe 20 square kilometers, linking the two nearby villages, we're trying to plan roads and accesses and plant, planting and, and trees and the use of a bridge over the river and so on. And that's really a sort of large-scale exercise to try and pull the communities together and try and have a common approach so that aesthetically it reads as a kind of a planned landscape mm -hmm. as opposed to a kind of improvised series of rather unfortunate, um, maybe good, but with no particular relationship a landscape. So that's something that I'm sort of participating in. Is maybe, good, good maybe. support for that? Well, uh, frankly, we wouldn't be doing it if there were not. I mean, the government has put money into this approach and we're absolutely gung-ho, and we just hope the money for the planning is followed by money for the construction because it's not a study for a study's sake. But I think if we can pull it off, it would really mean that the gardens would be red as part of a larger landscape. And so the moment you get in your car from the airport and the moment you travel the main highway, you would feel that somebody somewhere has planned the mm -hmm. approaches and planned the planned the, 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 the trees and the, and the vegetation and planned the signage and planned the directional usage and planned the integration of cycling paths and pedestrian walkways and, and so on, which which I, I believe in as a as the right approach in our environment, because uh, I think one of the dangers we're now facing, we're kind of victims of our own popularity and that we are big and popular, and I'm, you know, forever worried that, you know, tomorrow some horrific development is going to occur in my doorstep, at which point I can't control it because it's too late. So this process may help us at least modulate to some extent the improvisation that is a pretty common part of the planning process and in our country. You are listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Alexander Rieford. Alexander is a historian and the director of the Rieford Gardens of Metis, as well as a co-founder and present coordinator of the Metis International Festival of Gardens. The sites in the Metis Festival have not exploded, but they're starting to migrate a little further than the main festival grounds. Mm -hmm. Two that are in the historic gardens this year, and then there's one also in Montreal That's by right. the, the landscape architects NIP. Mm -hmm. Have have you considered exploding the festival into the smaller region so that it might in fact affect the airport or the, the main street in Montjoly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was driving into Montjoly today, and there's this uh, unplanted roundabout, and I thought, oh, that'd be a great project to, to intervene in or on on an annual basis and to take the idea to the city and say, look, this is a space with lots of opportunities. It's small. We could do it on a relatively cost-efficient basis, and we would create a kind of a micro-attraction for you every year. I can see the planning complexities of that, and I may not want to go there because you've got to deal with the Ministry of Transport and the city and subcontractors and all the rest of it. But yeah, I think we can explode. We can do it modestly and intelligently. We, we've had a couple of projects. We took a project, a very ambitious project at the airport. In fact, two. One was to create a large fieldscape with Le Balto, who does some amazing work with, uh, with, with these um, the vegetative cutouts, um, and we took that project to the airport authority, and we had another one to create a series of berms, planted berms, uh, neither of which have actually um, been accepted, but, you know, if somebody had money and, and the interest, we would certainly push that further. 
Um, and you know, I, as I, you know, as I said, I, th I see some unfortunate landscapes, and I kind of wish we'd had been able to or been informed so that we could bring our expertise to some of them, because I think we could make some of our communities more livable, bringing these international designers in a very modest way. So I think we got some work to do on that scale. But yeah, we're not against it. You know, we've exploded the festival with our own, with our within our own site. So I now understand the complexities of doing that perhaps more than I did before. Because a festival in a festival site is frankly a lot easier than a festival in a in a large public space, and so um, you know we dealt with that in the city of Montreal this summer. We have a project there, and you know you've got layers of administration, you've got planning authorities, you've got to satisfy the police and the fire department and security issues and surveillance issues, the kind of things that I don't have to think about on my mm -hmm. site because I manage all those issues and can make a decision today and start constructing tomorrow. Well, you can't do that in the urban fabric and the environments that political world is created. So, you know, I guess I'm a little more aware of the complexities. It doesn't mean to say we don't do projects. The NIP project is great, and it's a very public space, and I think it's a great success. But, you know, it takes a lot more energy to pull them off. You're on the board of directors of the Canadian Tourism Commission, mm -hmm. and you're currently working on a book uh, about tourism and travel in Quebec. In this role, both as historian and writer, and a uh, member of a board of directors, do you see the landscape as playing a pivotal role in the way we perceive our our place and the way our place uh, evolves, uh, our places, our regions evolve in the future through the attraction of outsiders? There's no question that, you know, Canada typically, um, and Quebec uh, indeed is exactly in the same frame, has typically used its natural landscape as the primary motivator of of tourism, so we play up, you know, his significant landscapes or the Rocky Mountains or Percy Percy Rock. Um, you know, we use even even the urban um, attractions. We tend to sort of package them as if they're natural ones, like the Shadow Frontenac in Quebec City. So there's a it's a tendency that you know you see going back to the beginning of the marketing of tourism in this country. And what's interesting, I think, now is how landscape and how large scale landscape has a capacity to attract people who would otherwise not be interested in your natural landscape. I, the natural landscape is now, so, I think, so much more accessible. There's so much more of it that travelers can get to. There's so many more travelers worldwide. And I'm not sure that our landscape is any more exceptional than any other one. Whereas I think what we can offer, certainly in a country as rich and, and intelligent as our own, is we can offer planned you know, landscapes or intelligent landscapes or urban landscapes um, that are as good, if not better, than anywhere else. So I think we've got a lot of work to do. But I think last year there was a significant project that was undertaken in Quebec City along the uh, what was this rather horrific um, four-lane boulevard along the St. Lawrence in Quebec City that was a very typical 1970s uh, cement landscape, and they transformed that into a significant kind of linear park in which the St. Lawrence has become accessible to essentially to the citizenry of that city, and lo and behold, what's happened was well, become a significant attraction to tourists. So I think it's a good example of, of how waterfronts and riverscapes and uh, the right you know, use of natural landscapes can, in, in a sense, create attractions that, that would otherwise not appeal to uh, you know, the, the traveler now who can you know, get in any plane from any part of the world and go to Barcelona or Paris or London or some of the great cities of the world. We can't offer those in this country, so I think we've got to build more on our natural landscapes. Does the Canadian, does the Canadian Tourism Commission 
Agreed. They do. In fact, they've sort of shifted significantly away from, what do they say, moose, mountains, and uh, there's a third word that I forget. But, you know, there was a typical moose, moose mountains, and mounties, I guess, were the three attractions that we used to see in all of our posters. Um, yeah, and there's nothing against any of them. But, but now what they're trying to package is urban getaways, for instance, or great museums and great exhibitions at those museums, or multiple culinary experiences in a three-day period in some of the major urbanscapes. So, yeah, they have shifted. I think the challenge for places like us is that we're not in those urban environments. We're still a long way from an urban center. So we have a tough time fitting into that. We're not an urbanscape, and we're nowhere near that. But we want to appeal to the exact same clientele, you know, the 35, the 55 person who is a global traveler who can travel anywhere at modest expense and enjoy a remarkable experience. We have to be able to attract that very same person. I'd like to talk, come back to the festival gardens and mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, the Blue Stick Garden. The Blue Stick Garden by Claude Cormier began here in your first festival and has traveled a bit around the world. And it's, begin, it's become a bit of an icon in its own right. This year, it will become a permanent piece of the gardens. Ironically, I've heard it said that Elsie would highly disapprove of the siding of the Blue Stick Garden, um, which is put off of one of the main axes, um, but within, very close, uh, within the grounds of the, the main villa. How does the new location, well, let me get, let me reword that, um, does it make it more fun to put the Blue Sticks so close to the house? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh for me to think on this process because, uh, you know, I've probably, uh, 10 years on, I'm becoming more like Elsie as I get older and think, oh, you know, is this just not too daring and too adventurous? And uh, Claude was interesting because we'd gone back and forth and the siting of this project initially was going to be in the festival site in or around its original location. We offered a wonderful site looking out to the St. Lawrence with all kinds of sort of geological complications that made it perhaps impossible. And then Claude sort of said to us, well, why don't we just take the idea to its fullest um, conclusion and, and bring it back in relationship to the idea um, at its origins, which was a relationship to a Jekyll-like mixed border and inspired by the, the mixed border that is the long walk, which is a sort of a signature feature of my Greek grandmother's garden and which inspired Claude in his own work. So he sort of pushed us to... to to accept his challenge, which was to actually, uh, you know, allow the garden to move from the confines, I guess, of a contemporary site to a historic one. And, you know, it's an adventure. I mean, I have a lot of staff who are not convinced it's a good idea. What we've seen in the past is these, you know, these initial consternations are generally mollified when people start to enjoy it because it's ultimately the public who decides what's good and what's not good. But I'm prepared for a little bit of, um, you know, come back on it, just as we did the first edition. I remember well the first time we presented Claude's Garden. I had people, you know, not lining up, but on occasion people going to the ticket booth saying, I want my money back. This is not a garden, and this is horrific. And how dare you call this a garden festival? These aren't gardens. These are, call it an art show or an installation show or land art, but these aren't gardens. I'm sorry, I don't accept your, your definition. So Claude is being provocative, and I think the force of his practice is to be provocative, but to do it in a way, I think, which has... Uh, context that even if you don't like it you can still explain it to people and in so doing make them understand the force of the concept and then and the and the ideas behind it so this garden stands on its own and with a bit of explanation it becomes even more powerful so i'm not too afraid um, you know again sometimes some 
one is innately conservative and one's staff is more conservative sometimes than the public is. And that's been one of the great, frankly, one of the great discoveries for me is that, you know, you have, one has prejudices about who will like contemporary gardens and who will not like them. And I just sort of had this belief that sort of ageism was such that older people wouldn't like them because they're traditionalists. Well, in fact, it's not at all relating to age. It's more relating to, you know, have you been to contemporary art museums? Are you interested in design? Um, Those people find the festival invigorating and fascinating, and those who are anchored in traditional experiences of horticulture tend to find the festival blank because there aren't enough plants, not enough bloom, and so on. So they're... they're, their anchoring is horticultural, um, and it's not age-related, it's not education-related, it's not sociologically confined to people from certain places. But it is interesting to see how different people react to the same garden. And what will be fun about Claude's garden is we'll be able to measure that reaction over the course of the year. So it'll be kind of, kind of become, I think, a kind of barometer to some extent mm-hmm. of people's acceptability of, uh, and understanding of both historical landscapes and contemporary design. Uh, because his garden is based on the Himalayan blue poppy that Elsie introduced here in her gardens, in its new location, does it become more poignant? I think it becomes more evident, because I think that component of the garden had to be explained. I don't think people na- naturally saw the blue as as being anything other than the artist's own wish to have a garden that was blue. So I think that'll, yeah, I think there's a relationship, particularly because people as they walk through the gardens will have seen those who come at the right time of the year will have seen the blue poppy and will arrive at the blue stick garden having seen them in bloom. So I think that connection will be more um, more evident than it previously was and it will allow, I think, for a richer understanding of an otherwise simple concept uh, with a very... Um, stunning and, and interesting delivery. And the fact that it's also in the context, I mean, sitting here, you can look at it and see it. I think that, too, is provocative because the relationship between natural landscape, planted landscape, lawn, um, installation, you know, the built environment, I think it also challenges our notion of space and the use of, use of space and the relationship between the built environment, the buildings, and the space. Now, when this, when this piece migrates to other sites in other countries, does it lose some of this importance? Yeah, it does. It does. And we took it to an indoor flower show in Toronto where it was, you know, in the starkest possible environment with this rather extraordinary light that the Claude found for us that sort of floated above it. It, it was very popular and people still talk to me about it. You know, you, you showed that blue stick garden in Toronto kind of, kind of thing. It, it, it marked people's imagination, but it wasn't the right environment for it. And it, it lost its context. Mm-hmm. It then went to a garden in England, which was a Jico Lutchen's garden, one of the you know, the most intact and authentic gardens that they created called Hestercombe, where it had a different relevancy because it was in an English setting very close to the inspiration of the historic garden here to some extent, you know, and the work of a of one of the leading, you know, architects of his day with the great sensibility for, for landscape and, and landscape architecture. And then it went to a, an urban show in Montreal. So it's had three different venues. This is its, this will be, I guess, its fifth life in 10 years, which isn't bad for a contemporary installation. But I think to some extent, this one is probably the most authentic and the most contextual and probably probably the most successful in the end. But, you know, time will tell. Like, you know, I can let you know in a few weeks how many horrified people uh, <laughs> I have at the ticket booth asking me for their money back 10 years on. Since 1995, you've been the director of the Reford Gardens. In 2000, the Garden Festival, the Metis Garden Festival, was born, and since then you've been working between these two worlds that are constantly pulling and pushing one another. 
nourishing one another while at the same time feeding off one another. And uh, soon there'll be a documentary film released entitled, I think, Two Times a Garden. Mm -hmm. And it will delve into the two gardens here at Reford. How do you balance your relationship, your love for these two children of yours? I don't know if I do balance them particularly well. I, you know, I think one of the things that we are trying in the gardens is to provide a Pacific, quiet, typically contemplative garden experience to our visitors. And having just gone through another week of the festival where the frenetic pace and machinery and construction and noise and dust, and you know, you realize you really are working on, in two different worlds, at least at that phase in the life of the garden. But ultimately what we want to do is the moment the festival is constructed and completed is to all the same provide visitors with a relatively contemplative and quiet environment. And yet the festival, in contrast to the historic gardens, is one that is interactive and actually brings people out of a, a kind of quiet, um, trance-like experience, which is that of visiting most gardens where the mind is less active than the, than the other senses. The festival is, is is kind of you know mind provoking. People have to think about what's going on. They've got to try to understand the concept. Sometimes they dialogue with people they've never met before to sort of ask them what they think. So it's closer to a museum experience or a, an art museum experience than a typical garden one. And I guess you know the balance that we try to find, and I think that's one of the balances that is most interesting at this property is you can have two very different visitor experiences in the same place. And if by adding things like the culinary experience, well, you can actually go even further by adding maybe a third or a fourth experience. So, and I, you know, and I think experiences are hard to provide in in a world which is so full of them and so full of you know electronic stimuli and frankly tough to get people to put their blackberries down and turn off their cell phones and actually just experience nature, leave their camera behind and actually look before you before you shoot kind of thing. And so I, you know, if we can do that for a few people, I think we're serving a special special purpose in a world which is otherwise, you know, replete with stimuli of all kinds. At the same time, you're also expanding your electronic stimuli. And this is the first year that the that the festival will have its own vlog, mm -hmm. festival blog. Um, could you describe a little bit the reason to introduce the the this blog into the festival and what what you think it may do to expand the the experience of the gardens? Well, you know, we're we're an institution like any other that follows the evolution of media, and I guess building on that seems natural and perhaps necessary. And if we don't, we're stupid. But at the same time, what we've seen every time we have a festival, particularly this week where we have 25 to 50 people on site, both um, designers and builders and their families and so on, is we see this sort of energy and enthusiasm. And the electronic media now present the platform so that that enthusiasm can perhaps be shared. And we noticed that some design teams were creating their own blogs with their own photographs of the construction process and the design process. And as we have the kind of visitor experience process where we photograph people interacting with the gardens, it struck us as kind of natural to try and put them all together so the designers can tell us what they're doing and the, you know, the builders can perhaps um, identify the, how the process is going. And then finally the visitors can partake in a kind of a dialogue. And you know, who knows, maybe ask the designer, well, what, what were you thinking? Or, <laughs> or I don't like your garden for the following reasons. Or why didn't you use this plant instead of that plant? I mean, I think it actually would would make the process um, more lively and maybe perpetuate gardens because one of the realities is these are temporary gardens who have maybe a one or two year lifespan and many people won't see them. Mm -hmm. But I think this kind of documentary record replete with photographs can actually create a new dynamic. Mm -hmm. We'll see how it evolves, but I, 
it seems dumb not to do it, particularly as designers seem to be doing it on, on, on their own, but it'd be kind of nice to do it within an environment that, that we allow our visitors to partake in the process. Earlier on, we talked a little bit about the explosion of the, the gardens within the festival grounds and maybe within the, the region here. You do have some other projects that you're thinking about, and that's the idea of inviting a city or representatives of a city or a place. Could you talk to us a little bit about about that? past, I guess, we've done two things. In the past, we have uh, had guest countries where one year we had France, the second year the United Kingdom, and the third year three Mediterranean countries, Italy, Morocco, and and Spain. And that was interesting from a programming point of view because it gives you a capacity, I guess, to say, well, we have three English designers or three French designers, and it's the year of the French or the year of the English. So from a marketing point of view, it helps the the PR people. But it also created kind of a two-way street so that instead of just receiving designers, we can actually send designs to these places. And that, I think, ultimately for Quebec and Canada are interesting because we can actually export talent and, and maybe play a role more, more actively, which is to actually promote um, excellence and, and good design outside the country. So if we can do that, I think we're doing something that is not easily done because Canadian design tends to be unknown and, and relatively um, unpublished. So if, if the festival can present a garden in Berlin or New York or whatever, then I think we're doing something interesting. So for 2010, it's quite possible we will host a number of designers from Berlin. Um, you know, Maybe in the year following, it'll be Barcelona or Mexico City or or whatever, but, uh, you know, we're kind of exploring a couple of these um, avenues to, to make the festival a two-way venue so we can invite designers from a particular city and then maybe send one or more of our designers to that city to intervene. Let's talk a little bit about the selection process of the, the gardens. Mm -hmm. Who makes up your jury, mm -hmm. and what is the process of selecting the, the final gardens? Well, I imagine our process is not dissimilar from a lot of design juries where, you know, we have a competition with a date, people submit proposals, the jury receives these proposals. This year, for the first time, we did it entirely in a web base, so we had 127 proposals that were available to the jury to to preview, and then we sat down in a both electronic and physical way with the jury president in Sweden and and uh, Scott Burnham, who was in New York, and the rest of us in Claude Cormier's uh, uh, kitchen in Montreal. And we you know, looked at these proposals one after the other and came up with six projects that we thought were to be built absolutely in the summer of 2009. So the process is multiple. This year we had Emmanuel, our artistic director, and myself and the jury. Claude Cormier was the representative, you could say, of the design community. We had Rachel Gottlieb, who's an independent curator and uh, author of a book on design in Canada. Uh, Scott Burnham from New York and Monica Gora, who's a landscape architect in Sweden, who assisted by telephone. And, you know, we it's not an easy process, particularly because the quality of the uh, visual presentations is is so great. Um, sometimes it's hard to um, separate the good from the great. You know, I think we did a good job, but it's an ever-challenging process. And then there are obviously other criteria that sometimes come into play. You know, do we have enough designers from Quebec or Canada, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis other designers from other jurisdictions? But we tend to try and pick projects based on the quality of the concept, ir irrespective of the, the design team and their experience is important, but for us it's really the idea that's central, and we try and pick the strongest concepts with some notion that the designers can deliver the concept. But it really is based on the quality of the, of the idea that we try and choose our projects from one year to the next. But, you know, it's... it's I always sit there at the table and, and sort of my reflection and invariably halfway through these juries is to say, well, can we not find some more money to build more gardens? And usually somebody says, well, no, you probably can't. So don't, you know, don't choose eight and then disappoint two people. You're better off to choose six and satisfy them all. So 
you know, I'm always pushing to do more, and somebody is quietly saying, well, that's not realistic. So <laughs> that's useful to have those people in your committee because it kind of brings you back to work. What makes for a successful Metis garden? Well, I guess from experience now, we presented, what, 80-plus gardens uh, over the last 10 years. Success is, is measured in different ways. Um, one, of the, one of the easy measures, I guess, for us is to the degree to which the public interact successfully and wish to interact. Some gardens are naturally more inviting than others. Uh, some people are seduced by the very nature of the concept. But the ones that, uh, you know, the ones that I remember most are the ones that bring a smile to somebody's face as they're leaving and, and generate discussion or that get people to pose questions. They don't leave anybody neutral. So I guess we're not looking for neutral spaces. We're looking for experiences that are rich and varied. Um, there's no magic. There's no secret. I mean, I guess one of the best ways to do the best garden is maybe to come and visit, see the site, and maybe understand its um, its complexities and opportunities. Do you have any favorites? Tough, tough to say. You know, we've, we've had some money. I guess in you know most recent years, uh, core sample very successful. Pete's in Alyssa North, which was a kind of a a sampling of the local environment, was a great great garden. One of the ones on the site today is. Um, Cédric Carant's uh, Bascule, which is this oversized swing set that allows the visitors to, in a, in, in a way, plant the garden. Kate Cullody did a wonderful garden based on the eucalyptus with these very attractive, seductive, corten steel, rust-colored um, panels surrounded by eucalyptus that kind of, in a, you know, in, a, in a fairly simple way, somehow magically evoked the colors and, and forms and, and uh, fragrances of Australia. From the first edition, we had some great gardens. Looking back, Bernard Saint-Denis did this extraordinary garden room, which was called the Chambre Verte, which was avant-gardist to the extent that, you know, now garden rooms and green walls are pretty pretty common, but 10 years ago it was somewhat exceptional. And, of course, Claude's Blue Stick Garden has been a garden that we've traveled with. I could go on. There's not many gardens that I wouldn't recommend somebody build. And, you know, it's um, it's been great for us to see at the same time. You know, we work with Nip Paysage, you mentioned earlier. Now we've done, it's probably the fourth project we've done with them in different venues and different places. And this is a design team which invariably is able to come up with a new idea every time we give them a project. So... You know, we've had some great designers and some great gardens. Like, I, you know, looking back, you kind of wish some of them had stayed for a little longer because we deny people the experience of seeing them. So that's the importance for us of publications and and websites and uh, documentation and interviews like this because it does allow, hopefully, the designs to to uh, to live on. What are the difficulties of actually constructing six to fifteen new or sort of re-renovated gardens? The biggest challenge every year is money, just getting the money to pay for them, because we don't generate a huge amount of money with the festival. It's something that we support. The garden support it, and we get some some sponsorships. We don't have enough, but we sponsor, we get sponsors to help out. And we were very successful at getting government grants from the government of Quebec and the government of Canada and various other agencies who support arts projects. But that said, we could always use more money. So that's always the biggest challenge. And the process of getting money, of course, is long and difficult and the reports and so on. That's one, one complexity. The other complexity, I guess, is, is the timing issue, that our climate is such that we don't have a lot of time to actually physically build these gardens. So we're working on a pretty tight schedule, seven to eight weeks. The other challenge we have is we have a very small team of people who actually do the building. So we have technical director, Francois, and, um, and essentially two employees who've been with us since the start, but the balancer 
essentially occasional staff who just start with us on the 11th of May and have to learn how to uh, build a garden, uh, many of whom have no experience in the field in a very short period of time, and you know, just learn about working with ourselves and our team and our sites and our tools and all the rest of it. So that's a, that's a challenge. I think it's one we've met pretty successfully over the years, and it's been a great it's been great to see the people learn as much as they do in a short period of time. And in spite of linguistic challenges, because our staff are mostly French speaking, at the end of the process, you know, they're sort of friendships that have emerged just because these people have helped in the creative process of building a garden by somebody they meet sort of in the last week of construction. So, so I guess, you know, there are many challenges, but those would be the first, the, the three that I would identify the most. Are any garden types that pose serious technical challenges? Well, it's fair to say that the gardens that are the most difficult to deliver um, are those with many plants which is sort of an odd thing to say, but as you all know, you know, as you know, you know, gardening takes time, and a good garden takes a good deal of time. And plants mature, and plants have a life cycle, and plants usually need to be planted one year and allowed to bloom the next. That's just the nature of the plants. So the sort of instant garden where you expect the plants to be in perfect form the moment you plant them, you know, is sometimes easy in urban environments with the local nursery, which has thousands of the same plants available at... Uh, irrespective of cost, but, you know, we're, we're working with very tight budgets. Uh, you know, we only give designers $10,000 for materials for these for these gardens, which in today's world is almost nothing. Mm -hmm. So the plants that require a great deal of care often pose a challenge because they're not really matured until the year afterwards. So that's sometimes a challenge that, that, you know, we have to be aware of, that some gardens look, in fact, better in year two than they did in year one. What's the ambience like around the tool shed and around the garden sites two days before the opening. This year, I would say, it was um, pretty by the, frantic. By the way, I noticed you have a couple of blisters on that's your right. head, not to mention some open open, open wounds. That's <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that's probably true of everybody who is here this week. You know, it's fun. It's exciting. It's um, it's occasionally depressing. You know, there were a couple of discouraged people this week. Um, last year, they were very discouraged because it was so wet and it was tough to work in the conditions that uh, that were. Provided. I think it's sometimes challenging for designers to realize that the design that they conceive four to six months out isn't going to come to life exactly as they had imagined for all kinds of reasons, either because the design was too complicated or the time required wasn't sufficient or the budget expectations were were you know were too low or you know there are any number of complexities. The time isn't 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 available. The materials weren't handy or the designer. You know, didn't didn't uh, manage the relationship with the supplier properly. Whatever. I mean, there are a myriad of problems that, that may occur. But I, you know, I think around the tool shed you had this sort of collective exhaustion, mm -hmm. and I think your genuine excitement, uh, which you know, which I think is great because I think our world doesn't have enough excitement. And when you can make design exciting, I think it's a good thing. Do you have any time for anything else? What do you do when you're not you're not at the Reefer Gardens? Well, I work here pretty much every day in the summer. In the, in the winter, I'm on a sort of, uh, you know, regular work schedule. What I try to do in the, in the off-season is to write and research and, and expand, I guess, my knowledge of, of this garden. And I've written a lot about it, and I've got more books to write. And I've been doing, you know, a couple of projects that have taken much more time than they should. So I've got lots of angry editors and publishers and so on. And I like to talk about the gardens. I give lots of talks um, around the country and, and abroad if I get an invitation. And that's my way of 
sort of enriching my own understanding and trying to reach out to audiences. So something I like doing because it's it's an opportunity to connect with the, with the public who might otherwise never come to visit. And the greatest pleasure for me is to do that to an audience and then see that person in the gardens, you know, a year or two later. Try to make, make this make this place more relevant by writing more about it and to the you know, to different audiences and continue my own research on a couple of other subjects that are interesting. And your next book projects? I do have a couple of projects on the drawing board. I've got a book on tourism that I should be finishing soon. I just begun a project with a photographer to do a book on the gardens of Quebec. So it's sort of a photographic essay in which I will contribute modest-sized chapters on some of the 10 or 12 leading gardens in this province. Um, I've been writing a great deal about my Greek Hermits uh, art collection, which I, you know, I'd like to sort of turn into an exhibition on their collection, but also the ways in which artists viewed them, because they were occasionally portrayed by various artists. So I've got a couple of projects that I've been working on, and you know, hopefully over time, my administrative duties will be such that I won't have to spend all my time uh, looking for money or justifying how it's spent. But you know, a garden is never finished, and this this garden is a series of significant projects that. Uh, the scene from one, the moment one is completed and the other one starts. Congratulations on what you've constructed here and on the future of its uh, future of its life. Thank you, Craig. And thanks a lot for joining us at Terrograms. Thank you very much. Eagle. Alexander is the director of the Reeford Gardens of Matisse, as well as the co-founder and present director of the Matisse International Festival of Gardens. Thank you for joining us for the 22nd Dispatch of Terrograms. Join us soon for a conversation with the Berlin-based landscape architect, Gabriela Kiefer, finalist for the 5th Biennale of Landscape. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books. For the wonderful music, you can expose yourself more to the books at thebooksmusic.com. This concludes our 22nd Dispatch of Terrograms. Thank you. Gentlemen, good luck. calling my husband, my brother, calling me every day, he's after me, and I, I was devastated, I was without a job, without a salary, I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told first kicks in after a few weeks, and I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition, and I told him I have a heart condition, I said, here, take a few dollars, I'm sorry this happened to you, just, but just leave me alone, I'm not the person who, who deposited us uh, myself, April, Tammy, and Brad.
Rainbow, 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 rainbow